Good morning, it's 9.30. Looks like our numbers are dwindling, so I'm getting too academic in these. But for those of you that have hung on, I think today's gonna get a little more uh, pastoral and devotional, I hope, and a lot more participation today. So we're gonna kind of test the bounds a little bit of our um, telecommuting um, ability to participate, and next week's gonna be a big one for that as well. Um, so we're actually, it says week one of six in Sermon on the Mount, but really we're fourth in our nine-week series on the life and teaching of Jesus. We went a couple weeks through the Gospels, through the chronology of Jesus' life. We learned along the way a bit of how the Gospel writers themselves uh, piece things together differently in different portraits. Last week was kind of a transition, looking at the person of Christ, particularly how he fulfills some of those Old Testament offices, uh, and then now leading into his teaching. Um, and then we'll have an overview today. Uh, we'll dig into the Beatitudes and then kind of just pick and choose some of the themes, overarching themes through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, before I get started, for those who aren't really that familiar with PowerPoint, realize when this gets posted, down below there's a bunch of notes. Basically, most of the things I say are in these notes as you go through the bottom. So that might help you if you want to review or if you miss a week and want to go back, recommend you following those notes. There's a lot of material I don't cover just for the sake of time, a lot of references, the actual Bible verses. And so that might be a help to you. So we've been kind of walking through this chart. Um, we looked at the opening chapters of Matthew leading up into the Sermon on the Mount last week. A uh, couple things I forgot to mention talked about how Jesus is the new Israel, and a few people remarked that uh, they had not really thought of that. They think of ourselves as the church is the new Israel. Well, of course, that's really the same thing. As the church, we're the body of Christ. So as Jesus is the new Israel, we are in his body, and that's exactly what makes us the new Israel. And a really important point, I talked about how Jesus succeeded where all these former people had failed. And of course, that gives us great hope that we're going to fail in this life. We're going to get into a lot of commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to fail. And the whole hope is that Jesus has fulfilled that even on our behalf, on our behalf. Um, and so we don't, it's not just a history lesson and thinking about these Old Testament people, these Old Testament failures, but that gives us great hope that he loves us. He calls us a son, and we are going to succeed because we're in him. And of course, as we come under the Sermon on the Mount, the most important things of those offices is the fact that he's Israel and he's Moses. Before I pray, I just want to thought we would, let's see. Jed, I want to share a new thing. Let's see. There it is. I hope you guys can see. Can you guys see the Bible there? Hopefully that's what's happening. No, we can't. So what you do is you go up to the top of your screen where you, you have, there it is. Okay, oh, good. We got it. All right, before we pray, I just want to kind of walk through big picture um, what's going on here in Matthew 5 through 7. Hopefully you guys have read this this last week. I'll read the first 16 verses and then just kind of skim through some things. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, he shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother has murdered. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, do not or give your wife a certificate of divorce. Don't swear falsely. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Love your enemy and hate. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, don't lust. Don't divorce your wife. Don't make an oath at all. Turn your cheek. Love your enemy. Beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The, the hypocrite has truly received the reward. But when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, do so in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the Gentiles. They think they will be heard for the many words. But when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Judge not that you not be judged. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everyone that who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you for this great sermon that we can dive into a bit. Help us to hear the words of our Savior. Help us to be sheep listening to our good shepherd. May we get to know his heart today. May we understand his whole teaching ministry. And may it transform us. May you humble us, because we know we don't even come close to these words. And yet let us rejoice that we would be in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for such a great Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let me get back to here. Okay. So uh, you guys are probably very familiar with this sermon. It's, it's probably the most uh, popular, uh, relatable sermon um, we've ever had. I, my main reference for this is going to be Mark Lloyd-Jones. He's got a book of 60 sermons that I read in the fall, and also Tim Keller and a few others. Um, there's just so many words have been written uh, about this sermon, as is appropriate. And again, as we go through the sermon, I'm presenting this as if it's really exemplary of all of Jesus' teaching. So as we're getting to know the Sermon on the Mount, we're getting to know Jesus' main thrust in all of his big sermons here throughout, particularly throughout Matthew. Now, one of the big things that's missing, particularly the early part of his ministry, but even in, in most of his major sermons, he doesn't really get into the details about the cross and the res resurrection. In fact, a lot of I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of what we really understand about the cross really comes later in the New Testament. So much was, was unknown. It was such a mystery, uh, such a surprise. Um, there, there are hints throughout Jesus' uh, ministry on earth, but it's really after the cross, through the ministry of the apostles, um, that we understand a lot more of that. And so that's probably the main thing that's missing here. Um, we're going to look at the major themes and it's a sermon, so it's, it's meant to be pastoral. Sometimes we can get, you know, there are a few weird things through there. You know, why would insulting your brother receive a relatively minor rebuke, but calling him you fool deserves hell? Uh, there's, there's just these weird sayings, and sometimes we might stop and, and stumble over um, 
a detail we don't quite understand, maybe just being a, a distant audience. Um, and there's a time and place to obviously dig into that and really understand it. But sometimes, and this is true of all your Bible reading, you just have to kind of step back. Okay, I don't exactly know what that exact phrase means or why it was said like that, but what is the main message here? And you can do that a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, because this is such a well-known sermon, this is a great evangelistic tool to understand the sermon. Number one, a lot of your friends are going to relate to some of these verses, right? They're going to kind of be familiar with the Beatitudes. They're going to know the golden rule that we read there. Um, and now, now you have a chance to really connect with them and quote something in scriptures that they can relate to. But because the world knows the sermon very well, they also misunderstand it and misquote it quite often, particularly talking about, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. And so it's a great chance to gently come alongside somebody and help them understand what Jesus was really talking about. And so it's a sermon that is worth our while to know well. I want to walk through now just some of the major themes as I read through there, uh, major aspects of the sermon. First of all, it talks a lot about the heavenly kingdom. And so we say kingdom, we're really just talking about the rule of God. We see that God established reign and authority and a realm uh, in the garden. And we saw last week how Adam failed in that. We see uh, authority being given to Israel and that they're failing. And so Jesus coming along is now really finally establishing God's rule on earth. And also it's a heavenly kingdom. 19 times Matthew's going to say the word heavenly in the sermon. And 10, 10 of those is in chapter 5 alone, a big theme. And so he's going to contrast the heavenly with the earthly kingdom, the spiritual with the natural. And every kingdom has a pattern, power, and a, and a product. But Jesus' kingdom is different. It's an upside-down kingdom, we often say. And so that kingdom has come. It's going to be among you. It's, it's, it's within you. It's the reign of Christ. And I was thinking a lot of our, our practical life choices um, become quite obvious when you have the right perspective. So really the heavenly kingdom is all about having the right attitude, the right perspective. And then the way you live your life, what that precisely looks like, um, kind of naturally flows out of that. I was thinking of the, the passage here where it says to lay up treasures for yourself uh, in heaven, where moth and rust and don't destroy and thieves don't break in steel. That's quite obvious, right? If you have two choices to where to bury your treasure, you're going to put in a place that's safe, where it's going to be kept. But the big difference is you need to believe that keeping it in heaven is what's going to be the difference and that he, all this treasure on earth is going to fade not only will it fade when you die it can fade while you're here so once we have a proper perspective and truly believe these words of god uh, those words of jesus in the sermon living the christian life kind of takes on its own momentum we're also children of a heavenly father this is a huge theme so he calls the father 15 times in the sermon. Back in chapter 3, he told the Jews, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So this is that whole transition from natural Israel. They prided themselves on being a natural child of Abraham. But Jesus is, is hinting already that my kingdom doesn't rely on such things. I'm going to raise up true children to Abraham. And now in this sermon, we're going to have a description of what that kingdom really looks like. And so the apostles are called in chapter 4. They leave their earthly father to follow Jesus. And after the sermon in chapter 8, he says, uh, and one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And so this, this, this departure from what is normal and natural and earthly in this world. And you can just peruse all those verses there throughout the sermon how much we're called children, we're called sons, and he's called our father and how he takes care of us as children. Another major theme is that we're called to be unique in the world. You know, salt is no longer good for anything unless it keeps its taste. That's its purpose. Its purpose is to bring a unique taste. And so if it loses its taste, it doesn't have some secondary purpose. It's done. 
light is meant to change its, its whole surroundings, not hidden under a basket. That doesn't do any good. So if we're called to be salt and light, Jesus is clearly expecting us to be noticed, to be seen, and to affect the world. For if you love those who love you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? See, the contrast is one major measuring stick of how we're doing as believers is, do we look like everybody else? What, what motivates us? What kind of actions are we involved in? It, could, could such an action or an attitude be described of everyone else in the world? Everyone else loves their family. But what's that big deal? Everyone greets their neighbors. He's calling us to love our enemy. Something that seems almost impossible. He also says, do not pray as the Gentiles do. Do not be like them. There's something about understanding what our life is to be like by contrasting ourselves with the world. And it's a question we, we always ask. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Few people relative to the world, few people will actually enter by the narrow gate. And many will perish despite saying, Lord, Lord. So we're not really, he's not so much contrasting ourselves with the ungodly, the irreligious. When we're talking about don't be like the Gentiles, don't be like the tax collectors, he's really saying don't be like other religious people. Everyone has some kind of religion. We'll, re, we'll learn about that in, uh, in chapter 6, that everyone does works of righteousness. It's how they're doing those works. Um, everyone's going to be calling on him, Lord, Lord. They think they're in. They think they have some connection, but they don't. And so the real question is, is not only unique to the irreligious, but even unique to a religious world. Maybe not a theme so much as just a, a characteristic. Is Jesus uses a lot of hyperbolic language. Um, tear out your eye and cut off your hand. Hide your right hand from your left. Like How is that even possible? A log, just the picture of a log in your eye. And then I wonder if, so some of his other phrases, like don't be like the hypocrites who love to sound the trumpet uh, before them on the streets and in the synagogues. Like, did they really do that? That sounds just so audacious to me like I wonder if he's being hyperbolic in that sense like when you're hypocritical when you're when you're doing you might be fooling your friends and neighbors but when you're doing things with hypocritical motives it's like sounding a trumpet to God he just hears it loud and clear and you're not fooling him one bit and there's just a lot of stark contrast we've seen in our study over the years certain writers are much more uh, contrasting First um, John, for instance, talks about light and dark, and just you're in or you're out. There's there's like no nuance sometimes, and that is definitely true uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Jesus' teaching ministry. So just really sifting through and discerning where are you? Are, is this a love or a hate motivation? Are you in the light? Or are you in darkness? Um, and again, we all practice some kind of righteousness, but with clearly contrasting different motives. And there is a lot in the sermon about righteousness, about works, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, being persecuted for righteousness, practicing your righteousness. Seek God's righteousness. And that's seen in other phrases like every tree that does not bear good fruit, looking for evidence. So actually works of righteousness in your own life. The concept of righteousness is seen in lots of different ways. We talk a lot about the imputed righteousness. Uh, we, we are declared righteous in God's sight, and all that is true. But at the same time, there's, there's clearly an expectation of righteous fruit, uh, of bearing fruit in our own lives, doing the will of God, um, following his law, not being a worker of lawlessness, of not only hearing his word, but doing them. You know, we all come to every passage in Scripture with um, just our overall understanding of different systematic uh, different systems, different overall worldviews, different. Um, we, so as soon as we hear a phrase, we pick up on it and we kind of interpret it through our own filter. And we'll talk a bit about that next week. Um, if, if, if someone is into works righteousness, into legalism, into proving themselves, into gaining God's favor by their own works, like most of the world really is, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot to trigger them on this. I mean, if you don't understand this with gospel eyes, there's a lot you can run on. Uh, some people like the sermon because it, 
they feel like it's it's not not really theological. It's a bunch of moral principles, and they like that kind of thing. It gives them a lot a lot of verses to put on their wall and the ways to live their life. And they they want to kind of keep the Bible and the relationship to Jesus at that level. Just give me some things to do today and and cute little words to say. But if you take the words of the Sermon on the Mount um, honestly, I think that approach would actually kill you. Here's a couple um, examples. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the scribes and Pharisees were the most meticulous, um, the most disciplined in following the letter of the law. And so for these people, these really peasants, <laughs> these are blue-collar people that Jesus is teaching out, on, out in the wilderness. For them to think that they're going to be measured, even just against the scribes and the Pharisees, would be, would be frightening. It, they would find it absolutely impossible. This kind of a saying from Jesus would just really unnerve them. And then it gets even worse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So if, if you really are going to approach this sermon to live your life in a way that now will earn favor with God, um, you're really going to have no hope. And so within the very heart of that is, is a need for the understanding of justification, even though he doesn't talk about it explicitly. All right, so there's the themes. And just thought, um, again, these are, these are characteristics of, well, let, I'll say that for a bit. All right, so here's kind of a, one way you could outline the sermon. So we're going to talk today about the first two, description of a Christian character and, and the relationship that we have to the world. And then next week we'll get into the relationship of Christians to God's law. And then I'm not exactly sure what, uh, what specific themes I'll take for the last four, but probably a couple from each chapter. Living in the life of the presence of God and fellowship with him. And then living under his discerning judgment. Another way, another way of saying all that is the sermon is really to Christians. He's talking to those who are in the kingdom and trying to sift out those who are of false faith. And so we want to be those who understand our blessed position and our unique mission. We want to keep the law of our king. We want to live by faith in the presence of an unseen father. It's, it's very easy to, to do our works of righteousness so that we may be seen and praised by others. But to truly believe that our father, who we don't see, that he sees us in secret and will reward us, that is, that's the very essence of faith. And then we want to walk in the fear of God. Uh, the world ought to walk in the fear of God, and there's a sense in the church walks in the fear of God, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, so on to the Beatitudes themselves. So they all start with blessed. So blessed is to be happy. This is a way to have joy, um, to be fulfilled, and um, yeah, to, to, to feel that life is what it is supposed to be. Um, and it's not just a blessing for the future. There's a lot of that. But it's a blessing now. Blessed are those who are such and such. Um, there's some emphasis here as we go through them. The fact that Jesus starts with the Beatitudes before he gets into commands is really important for us because Jesus cares about character before conduct, attitudes before actions, and being before doing. So much like Israel in the Old Testament, uh, they were saved. They were called his people. They were established as God's chosen one. And then they were given the law from Mount Sinai. And so the, God's commands and his laws come to those who are in relationship with him, who are already loved and cherished by him. Another thing is that these, uh, these beatitudes are not like spiritual gifts, where you might be given one or two, um, and you try to find your spiritual gift. These are manifestations of the Spirit of God in, in his children. And so all Christians ought to be manifesting all these beatitudes. Now, we know we don't do it perfectly. Uh, we don't do it consistently. But this is the type of thing, as we go down this list, we ought to be hoping and praying um, that we see this in our own life and that we start questioning uh, where and when we don't uh, and repenting and trying to figure out our heart motivations. And then, of course, these are not just things you can put on. Uh, these aren't things you just bear down and, and it's a matter of discipline. Uh, these are graces that come from the Holy Spirit. So, so as we see our life failing in any respect, and we should, 
um, it's a chance to fall on our knees and, and to wonder and to, to, to question our hearts uh, at the right level uh, and to pray to, to see these things um, manifest in our own lives. Uh, and then as we go through these, you'll see uh, sometimes each of these Beatitudes, we might, um, there might be some counterfeits out there that kind of look like that. Maybe someone would say you're, you're so much. Um, but uh, you, you know, whatever these, blessed, these attributes are, whatever these characteristics are, must come from God. They aren't something that would just be natural in the world. Because we're talking about, again, a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. So sometimes people add a ninth one here. Um, I'm just going to assume that ninth beatitude is really part of the eighth, that whenever people persecute you and revile you at, at the end there, I assume it's just uh, going to go on. So these are usually the eight that people talk about. And as you just look at this list, you can you can see the, the humility um, that's in them, the, the lowliness. It starts and ends with um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, kind of bookends for the, for the Beatitudes. Lloyd-Jones sees some really um, importance to the order here. I, I don't know if that's important. The first three are a little more like intrinsic to you. Uh, and then kind of the pinnacle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's, that's kind of all of it. And then the next three are more outward facing and, and how we relate to the world. And then the, uh, the last one is, is the ultimate um, relationship to the world. It, this is a, as we start to go into how the Christians relate to the world as salt and light. Um, it's going to be through persecution. As you think about what you want in your own life, um, the type of person you want to marry, uh, how you want to raise your children, uh, we're praying for a staff worker at church, how you're choosing church leaders. You know, there's, sometimes we focus on other things. And this would be a great list to focus on. Like, this is what I want to see in my own life. This is kind of a temperature uh, of how I'm doing um, my spiritual health. This is who I want to see in a potential spouse. I want, I want to see these manifest in them. Um, that really shows signs of maturity in the faith. This is what I want my children to be like when they grow up and leave the home. Um, and this is what I think a leader that I, that I could willfully submit to uh, should look like. And again, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't, don't get tripped up on one. I don't exactly know what Jesus means here. Take, take these as an overall um, kind of list uh, of characteristics. And we're going to walk through some of these together. First, let me just talk about salt and light. So again, we talked about salt and light really relies on the fact that their very purpose is to be unique or to be noticed in the world, to leave an impression, which is weird because later he's going to say, do things in secret, right? And we're going to talk about that. And he's really saying, act like who you are. Like you are salt. You are light. Um, it's not that you, you become those things. That's who you actually are. If you're a child of God, you are salt. You are light. And the question is, is how effective you are at it. Um, so just really be who you are. And remember whose you are. Ultimately, it's Jesus who's the light of the world, right? We're not the light of the world, but we are reflecting his light. And so, you know, often people will say, you're the only Jesus that someone will ever meet. And there's a, there's a sense that that's true. They're, they're not going to pick up the Bible and read it. They're not going to understand. Um, and you're that avenue to Christ. Uh, obviously, first your life, whatever might attract them. Uh, if nothing else, they see that you're different and you're willing to be different. And when, when the spirit goes to their heart and they start asking such questions and they start coming to talk to you. And then, of course, ultimately you want to share them the actual words of the gospel. It's not just about modeling a life. And I said this already, but we have no secondary purpose. This is it. We're salt and light. Uh, there, there's no secondary purpose to salt. It's, it's no longer good for anything if it loses its taste. It, it's, it's meaningless. So it's not like, oh, we want to be light and salt at, at some points. No, that is it, right? And so whatever that means is what we want to pursue, and we want to pursue it wholeheartedly. All right, so I want to, this is what I want to do now, and I'm going to walk through a couple examples here. 
I want you to start thinking about the Beatitudes. And th these are three questions you could ask yourself to really get to understand the Beatitude. What do you think it is? What do you think it means? Um, if Jesus is really, obviously, our, our big brother and the ultimate example, we ought to find some kind of examples how Jesus was poor in spirit, uh, where he was meek, where he hungered and thirsted for righteousness, etc. And then as I talked about, um, there are counterfeits out there. There are ways that we might be a little fooled, something that might sound like it's poor in spirit, but it's not really. It's not the type of fruit that the spirit um, would create in a believer. And, and it's, it's the type of thing that people might be self-deceived because of it. So I'm going to walk through a couple of these, and I'm hoping you can start thinking, looking ahead uh, at the later ones there, and I'll see which ones you guys want to go through, and we'll give it a shot. So first, what do you think poor in spirit means? Just think about that for a second. Talk with whoever's in your home there. And maybe we don't have exactly precisely. But obviously, think of being humble, right? Not thinking too much of yourself. Being driven by grace, not by your own self-worth, not by self-ambition. I cheated because I've been looking at this for a week. Uh, James 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the riches in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So we, we, don't, we don't tie ourselves and, and, and think highly of ourselves because of our position in life, but we're actually rejoiced the fact that the, the rich and the poor in the, in the body of Christ come together and they're, you know, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Uh, where would Jesus have shown us an example? Immediately, I think of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And also 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then the last one, uh, what is it not? Um, I think there's a, there's a false humility. There, there's a way of, of hearing the word poverty and wanting, it's, it's like a woe is me. Um, but, but it's in a sense that look at me. Look, look, at, look at how humble I am. Um, and it's still, the focus is still on yourself. It's not really emptying yourself at all. It's just building yourself up in, in a false way. Um, and you might think of some others here. All right, and I'll walk through one more. All right, those who mourn. I'll just give you my answers right away. So I think of the mourning is, is really a deep conviction of sin. Um, I immediately thought of James 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And so I think what James is saying there, and I think what this beatitude is talking about, um, is, again, it's, it's that whole contrast with the, the, the earth versus heaven. Um, from an earthly perspective, there's lots of things to laugh at and be jovial and to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, as Hebrews 11 says. Um, but... But there's a real soberness, there's a real seriousness about the children of God where our joy and our happiness, he's saying to be blessed. I mean, how weird is it that he's saying happy are those who mourn? That just seems so contrary, which is what I see in James 4. But when you're, when you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. When you become a friend of God, well, the world looks down on that. They don't understand how you can be so joyful uh, with such an attitude and and just giving yourself and putting yourself out there for, for risk. And so I, I think that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's really a, a pleasure of the world versus a pleasure of God. Uh, in the examples, Isaiah 53, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We see that Jesus wept. We see he, even he mourned. Uh, and I think the, the messianic psalms out there where the psalmist is crying out, where are you, God, um, just out in anguish and pain. And we see later that many of those are actually attributed uh, to Jesus. And then just maybe an example of 
of maybe something that's false would be Romans 8.15. God is giving you a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And so there might be a way of, of looking like you're mourning and sad, but it's, it's really not out of some heartfelt um, inner joy. So anyway, that, those are my thoughts on those two. I've got thoughts on all of them. So let me open it up. Um, hope, Jed, if you can make sure they can unmute themselves. Um, if you either have comments on either of those two, or if you want to take a crack at one of the other ones, um, don't worry about getting it right or wrong. And I'm not sure in some of these I, I necessarily got a quote right or not. But does anyone else want to kind of walk through a beatitude and what are your thoughts? So everyone should be able to unmute themselves in order to uh, participate, guys. Um, I always this is that I always thought it was instructive how Jesus had all power, being the Son of God, and yet at the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. What what true mourning is. So mourning both for um, what he sees Mary and Martha experiencing, but also a sense of the sin, the death brings about sin. I mean, sin brings about death. And if you want to talk about one, don't feel like you have to have all three columns filled out or anything. <laughs> no, let's see. Well, in this world, um, we certainly don't want to be persecuted. I mean, we certainly, the temptation of the world is to go along, and yet I've been convicted a lot recently reading through that, you know, if we are going to be different, but the whole thing is assault, and assault is also preservative. Think about how the culture um, is very different if all the Christians were not here, you know, that, that, that we, we truly are called to make a difference in the culture. And, so, uh, so when we exercise that, we are going to get pushed back from the world. Um, it's clear that in this day and age, especially in light of things like uh, social media, you can say something and it gets out there, and the next thing you know, your reputation is destroyed. It's because the world doesn't just say, okay, you hold a different position. It's, I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm going to destroy you. So we think about that. I mean, <clears throat> recently there have been folks that have, you know, pointed to biblical truth. And the next thing you know, they are being pilloried in the culture. So potential is there. They are more so in the middle of all the social media types that we have. Um, Jesus certainly, I mean, he goes in the middle of the temple and uh, knocks over the money tables and kicks out the money changers. I often think about you know, how Jesus did not ever compromise. And he, and he wouldn't have because he was you know, sinless. He was there for the Father. He was doing the will of my Father. I do what my Father called me to do. Um, what it is not is not to I, I think about it in terms of those that, that we see sin. It's not for us to go in and <clears throat> convict with a uh, pharisaical mindset is to go in and point people to gentleness and to point them to the kingdom. You know, to go to someone and say, you know, I'm really concerned about that behavior. I'm concerned that the outcome of the behavior is not, you fool, how dare you do that? So it is, it is to truly um, model what Christ has shown us in the attitudes. Amen. I mean, if we do see a brother or a sister going astray, I think we should come alongside of them. Definitely, Ed. I think that's a good idea to say that because I think sometimes if we see that, um, it's kind of our responsibility because if we love somebody, we're going to tell them the truth and we're going to say, you know, 
please be careful because this path you're taking is leading you further away from the Lord. Right. I often think of John 4 with Jesus, though. Um, he didn't say, you adulterer. He said, bring your husband. So he found a way to bring the issue to the nice. Lord, mm. But to do it in such a way that it stopped the woman claim the response yourself. And that, that's, that's the, the, the true the true difficulty and also praying beforehand before we do anything like that to make sure that our words are indeed salt and light and not just offensive. And I think we should take a person aside in private if we have something to say to them, really, is the best way. Sure, exactly. One of the things you said there, Ed, reminded me of, of the fourth beatitude. Um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, that John 4.34 in the middle there. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Um, and so I, I thought of this as, uh, you know, you hunger and thirst. There's a, there's a lot of phrases throughout the Bible about um, taste and see that the Lord is good or um, the spiritual milk, you desire that spiritual milk. Um, and and that, that, that need to, to truly be hungry and thirsty, we, we don't really know what that means in, in our day and age, thankfully. Um, not many times have any of us have truly been hungry and thirsty, but that's the image there, is to just need and hunger for God's righteousness so bad it's, it's consuming. Uh, the passage I thought of there at the end of Romans 7 says, I find it to be a law that I want to write evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is just in the throes of wanting to follow God and finding it absolutely impossible in his flesh to do so, and just wrestling with it all. Uh, and it's, it's, it's given him great grief. And he just cries out. And, of course, it, it breaks in. But thanks be to God. Uh, thanks, thanks be to God that the answer is in Jesus. Praise so that's God. The hungry and thirsting. Oh. Uh, of course, it was Jesus's. That was his food, was to do God's will. And then what isn't it? Because um, it says those who thought hungry and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Well, we, sometimes it's really the heart of pride. It's, it's the heart of works righteousness. You think you're, you're living the law so well that you feel satisfied, and that you feel smug, that satisfaction is in yourself and the way other people can see you. Philippians 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reasons, uh, I have more. And that, that great passage where, where Paul can list all of his resume, his, his beautiful list of, of works and of goodness, and he just throws them away and done. Anyone else? Any other beatitude you guys want to look at? And if there are written comments, I don't see them. So let me know. There aren't any right now. Okay. No thoughts? Is there one you want me to go through? I don't have time to go through them all. Well, I think it's certainly in this day and age with what has happened in the last few weeks, it gives us ample opportunity to show mercy to others. And, you know, I know a lot of what, what is being trumpeted in the press about people reaching out, um, you know, it's done, it's done out of a, a sincere desire, you know, to help. But I also am very aware of how, how much um, the, the whole works righteousness thing about uh, look look what I've done. And, and I've, I've seen less of that this time. I think I think it's it's sobering people to realize, you know, how fragile life is. We we have watched our city, particularly to Las Vegas, to watch the city uh, totally lose any sense of what it's all about. You know, the, uh, driving down the strip is, is a sobering sobering reminder of how fragile life truly is, what we think, what we think is the reality and how quickly that can change and this points to our dependence. So therefore, um, you know, calling us to be ever more merciful to others 
to meet the needs of others. Amen. Hey, Keith. Yeah. This is Christy. Um, so I wondered if we could talk a little about peacemakers, um, because it seems like within the church, um, that could be more like what it is, but um, when we're outward facing toward the world, um, I mean, the gospel is offensive a lot of the time. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that, like in the church versus outside of the church, what that looks like for Christians. Yeah. That's a great point. Sometimes when you read this whole sermon all together, and this often happens, you just read the big parts of the Bible together. It can be hard to kind of put those together. It's a great point. We, we expect persecution, right? So how on earth is that peace? Um, I think, um, I'm thinking off the cuff here a little bit, but I, I think primarily Jesus is talking about more of our relationship in the world than within the church, although I, I'm sure we can apply all that um, offhand. But I think when he says we're peacemakers, um, he's, he is talking about making peace somehow in the world. Um, this, this is my initial thoughts, and then we can think through more. Um, verse I thought of there was in Romans 12, where he used to seek harmony with one another as, as long as it depends on you, live at harmony with one another. Don't it, it, a lot of it's about humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Um, associate with the lowly. And really, as far as it depends on you, there, there's only so much you can do. But uh, he talks about, uh, you know, your enemy. Give him something to eat. Give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Um, and so it's your, your enemies are, are looking for a fight. And you're not going to give it to them because you're going to deflect the defensiveness about yourself. You're, you're, you're not going to fight them. You have, you're on a mission to be salt and light and to share the gospel. You're not, you're not sitting here trying to win an argument. Um, so he's talking about not avenging yourself, but leaving it to the wrath of God. And so I think I mentioned last week that as Jesus was going through his trials, he just sat silently. They kept throwing insult and insult. But whenever, once they attacked his father, he stood up and spoke up. And so we know that when we preach the gospel, it's, it's an aroma. It's an aroma of death to some and aroma of life to others. So when we declare the gospel, we will cause division. Mother will leave a son, brother and sister, husband and wife. It's going to bring division in the world. We want the division in the world to be the gospel, to be Jesus. We don't want it to be ourselves, to be our haughtiness, to be... Um, the way we're forcing ourselves, we certainly don't want it to be any kind of self-righteousness. And so I think that's one way that you reconcile those, not that they need to be reconciled, but we make peace in the ways that we can, in the ways we control, and in the ways that don't matter. We, we, don't, want, we don't want to get let politics or um, our views on anything to get in the way. We don't, we don't want anything from this world to be a stumbling block. Um, when we're talking about heaven and leading people to the kingdom of heaven, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Uh, we know that we've been reconciled um, to God th through the gospel. And the only real way to bring peace is the, the defeat of an enemy. We saw this in Romans 16 a while back when we went through it. I, one of my favorite verses is the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. He's a God of peace, but he's going to crush Satan. And so those who continue to resist God are going to be crushed and there's going to be great division and strife. And yet the only way we can really bring them to peace is through the gospel. Um, that, so we, we can't be a friend of the world, right? Otherwise we're an enemy of God. So we want to bring our friends and make them friends of God. And, um, and then we're going to be at peace with each other. Um, I think that's at least part of the specific, uh, the answer to your specific question. We see Jesus as the Prince of Peace. He made peace by the cross. You can't just declare peace. All right, everything's good. God has a memory. He remembers sin, and sin has to be dealt with. And the only way to deal with it is at the cross. And so that's the only true way to have peace. And therefore, in our own life, there's always going to be something between you and an unbeliever, and 
you don't want it to be you. You want it to be Jesus. Um, so if he's the one, like even in the, the eighth beatitude, you're persecuted for righteous sake. First Peter tells us a lot about, there's lots of ways you can be persecuted. That's your own fault, right? You, you're just being a dummy. You're sinning. Uh, your master's going to beat you because you're sinning. That's all appropriate. But if, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, that's a whole other thing. That, that, that's something that the world doesn't, doesn't understand. And then one way that peacemaker might look, um, might be false, is that we might just want to try to appease people, right? We don't want to have a fight. We don't want to argue. We don't want people to hate us. And so we're going to appease them. Well, that, I mean, on certain subjects, that's okay. If you are really strong in political beliefs, you can let it go. I encourage you, let it go. But if you're talking about the gospel, you can't just do that. You can't just give up your allegiance to the gospel because it makes, quote, peace in the world. That's a false peace. And so we don't want to just appease people. We want to stand for God's truth, for his righteousness. We want to live a righteous life, no matter how much people hate that. But again, we don't want to make it about us. We want to make it about Jesus. I don't know if that fully answered you, Christy, but hopefully there's something in there. Yeah, great explanations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are, uh, not that we have to get out of the way for Tim. <laughs> Give us a few minutes to get ready for worship. Uh, this would be a great exercise just to, to walk through this. This would be a great thing to do with your kids. Um, what do these Beatitudes mean? Um, how did Jesus show us a bit about what it is and what do we want to be careful of? It would be a great study for yourself as well. So commend that to you. Um, for next week, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5 um, and just start thinking about a pretty challenging topic. I want to do it in a unique way. But what does it mean for the Christian today in the New Covenant to follow God's law? What is that law? And if we're not sure, what do we do about it? So anyway, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it, can, it is the power of God to transform us. Help us, Father, as we go through the sermon um, to not be crushed by the, just the weight of what you call us to, the perfection that you demand. Help that drive us to the arms of Jesus and to be so thankful that we have a perfect Savior who has done all these things. He has fulfilled them perfectly in our place. And yet help us not to, to just look out for ourselves, to enjoy Jesus in this life and look forward to heaven, but, but to be active in a mission while we're here. Help us to only find our joy in being salt and light, in desiring to see others around us, uh, to come to faith in Christ, and to, to be restless until we see that happening, to help us to carve out time for others, to be able to explain to them, and help us to always live a life of repentance, where we see uh, the fruit in our life falling short um, of what we read. Um, help us be quick in front of friends and enemies and neighbors alike, uh, quick to um, tell them that you, you don't live up to the standard, and that's not the point. Um, to call them to, to Jesus, not, not to be like you, but to be like Jesus. And thank you now as we go into worship, we pray that as we look at the early church there in Acts, that it would be a great um, lesson for us of how you work in the world sovereignly and how we as a church at Spring Meadows um, want to be, to be a faithful body of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.